Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to The Brainstorm, episode 26. Nick, we've made it a full half year. Half great, year. Great consistency. Uh, we're going to be talking about Cybertruck. We're going to be talking about a new paper on prompt engineering and what that means for the large language models. And then we're going to intro a new segment and dive into uh, prediction markets. So Brett, maybe we just dive right in. What was your impression of the Cybertruck reveal? Uh, not reveal, first deliveries. I, I think I should be asking you because you're actually our, our batteries and manufacturing expert. But I would say that um, it's an amazing piece of engineering that has you know, lots of new technology in, embedded in it that they didn't really describe very specifically in in the delivery event, but um, is actually the set of innovations that is going to go into their next gen vehicles and, and probably an effective way to to bring those to market for a first step. Right. So thoughts? then maybe just to yeah to frame it, um, I think it was a mixed reaction from the general public. And the reason for that was, you know, when this was originally unveiled, spec prices were lower as pre-inflationary pressures as well. And range was touted as being farther. Uh, And so then it came out, but the price that it came out, I think makes a lot of sense. And the features in it, as you said, um, are pretty remarkable. And then we can touch on range because I think there's a specific message being sent with the range that they're providing. But just on context for pricing, I think it makes sense that Tesla comes out in the middle of where competitors are, right? Especially given that this is supply constrained. You don't want Tesla price gouging. And we know we saw some auction early on where someone was willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a Cybertruck, right? It doesn't make sense for them to gouge the customer and say, this is a $115,000 car, 
and we know people want it, so we'll take that and then lower it. But they're really coming out in the midst of where the competitors are. Speci specifically, you look at the Rivian, that's priced around 79000 The Ford Lightning is around 79000 uh, the all-wheel drive Cybertruck coming in at just under 80000 And if you look at average transaction prices for full-size pickups, it's like 66000 And for full-size SUVs, it's $77,900. So it does seem to be in this sweet spot. Um, I think what you said on the technology as, is spot on here as well. Tesla has said, you know, they're kind of in the middle of two waves of mass market growth. And I think the Cybertruck is allowing them to have a profitable platform for R&D that's going to go into future vehicles. And so the big ones here, steer by wire, is pretty remarkable. And so just if you don't know what that is, if you're turning, I'll bring my hands nice <laughs> up and close here. If you're, if you're making a, a sharp turn in a normal car, right, you're going hand over hand, turning the wheel. Um, with steer by wire, it's essentially dynamic. So going like this turns as sharp as possible when you're going at slow speeds. And then at fast speeds, it adjusts so you're not zigzagging like crazy. So that's pretty yeah. novel. I think there. another way to, instead of steer, steer it's called steer by wire because you no, you no longer have the mechanical interconnection between the steering wheel and the wheels, but it's really computational steering because also mm -hmm. the back wheels turn also. If you're on the highway and you steer, kind of the front wheels and the back wheels actually turn in the same direction to like allow you to drift across to the new lane really efficiently. Whereas if you're going at slow speeds, the back wheels go this way and the front wheels go this way so you can get that tight turning radius. And so kind of the um, people described it as it's almost like the car understands better what you're trying to do by turning the steering wheel rather than it just being like a, I'm mechanically doing this thing, but it kind of like is misaligned with my actual intention when driving the vehicle. So I think like computational steering uh, and and also, you know, braking soon, they, they still are doing wired braking, I think, but but it seems like all of the controls will be abstracted out to, um, you know, even like in an emergency event, if you brake, there's right now automatic emergency braking that actually fully depresses it to the floor because people have this bias where they only brake a little bit and they should brake a little, a lot harder. But you can imagine if that's all computationally controlled, it, it actually will um, really map to the intended action of the user, adjusting for whatever biases um, the average user might have more completely. And another good example, it's uh, the, the future of vehicles is software, not mechanical, right? And this is kind of a very clear application of that. Uh, one of the other big advancements here that they're unveiling is the 48 volt architecture. So that's good from a efficiency and wiring standpoint. Um, and then it also sounds like what they talked about at Investor Day with how they're planning future wiring harnesses and manufacturing is being somewhat deployed in the Cybertruck, which is you're really reducing the wiring harness. And it sounded like going to more of an Ethernet-based control system, continuing to go further verticalized into these um, end parts of the vehicle that, again, allow them to do these firmware updates beyond what was ever imagined possible. So it's not just windshield wiper, you know, who knows how far they will go with the firmware update capability.
And I, I think this also illustrates the degree to which Tesla, um, it, some of these innovations you actually can't do without doing other innovations at the same time. So the whole auto industry is subject to this kind of like chicken egg problem of it's like, we need our suppliers to do this so that we can do this so that we can make this decision. Like I think steer by wire is possible only because of the new voltage system they move to, because you actually need to have um, kind of like powerful enough um, motors on the steering mechanism um, that, that, that would be uh, prohibitive on a 12 volt system to run. Uh, and so um, kind of like there's a degree to which when, when, when technology is a new technology, a new technology platform, having like as much control over the entire technology stack as possible is really important because or else you end up in these scenarios where um, you can't get everybody to make the decision to, to, to do the logical move all at once. Um, if, if you have a bunch of like, kind of like farmed out suppliers and that's what traditional auto is faced. Like they all recognize that steer by wire is something that they should do. Uh, they, they all recognize that 48 volts is something they sh should do, but how do they convince all of their tier one suppliers to like transition over at the same time as them at the same time as all of their competitors. And Tesla is big enough in the marketplace now in terms of its, its vehicle programs that it can, that it can compel some suppliers that it needs to transition over. And then it can design the spec and, um, kind of engineer themselves right up against what the specification is. And so the net is they end up with a, a more efficient vehicle. And that's like, it's no surprise to me that they priced the vehicle where they did. That's where, you know, that's the clearing cost for a vehicle with these kinds of specs. And actually their specs superior to, to, to certainly the lightning and the Rivian. Uh, I think if, if you're honestly accounting for, for all of the performance that they're delivering, um, and because they are all, all the way in on this new architecture, they should have a steeper cost decline in terms of their, their ability to manufacture these um, technologies over time. And so we don't, know, we don't know what the gross profitability on the Cybertruck is going to be starting out. And it'll be really sensitive to the ramp of the program. Um, but there's definitely reason to believe if they stay at this price point, all competitors stay at this price point, they will be like much more profitable for these vehicles relative to competitors because of the way they're set up and, and pursuing these new technologies. And that brings us to this last point of controversy from the unveil, which is the range and Cybertruck all wheel drive coming out with 340 mile estimated range with a range extender, which is essentially a big uh, toolbox shape fits in the trunk of the Cybertruck, roughly 50 kilowatt hours, I think, um, extends the range to 470 miles of range. And so then, you know, people are saying, you know, originally there was a trim that offered over 500 miles of range. Why are they going with 340? What is the, is this range, range extender um, intentional? What are they thinking with this? And I think the reality is that there has been a range arms race in a sense with people coming out and they're saying, oh, longer, longer range. Um, Tesla does have the supercharger network. Everyone's signing on to the supercharger network. It's wasteful and illogical, I would say, to really have range beyond the 350 to 400 mile range. Um, at the same time, talking to people after the event, it seems like the range anxiety number 
is clearly somewhere between the 300 and 470. It's like you tell people 470 and they're like, oh, absolutely. You know, bigger is better. Um, Same, but I, I think it's one... an intentional, intentional saying, you know, this is the logical range that you want, especially with such a expansive supercharger network. I have a question. When you say wasteful beyond 300 miles, is that because it just takes too much to then charge? Like if you are doing a road trip, right? Charging beyond 300, 400 miles, that for most people, they're not going to sit around and wait for you know a full charge past 400 miles because it would take 30, 40 minutes. Or are you saying there's another reason why you think that's wasteful? I'm actually the inverse of what you said. If you have okay. 400 miles, if you have 400 miles of range, you're probably stopping before you drive 400 miles. That's a long time to drive without stopping. And because probably 95% of people are not going to exceed that in everyday travel, right? If you're, if you're driving, even if you're road tripping, Maybe you need it if you're towing something heavy in cold conditions and you're going from, you know, below sea level up the Rockies and, you know, you're, you're stopping before you have to. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of just from everyday use, 350 to 400 miles is that sweet spot. And it's even gas powered cars have various tank sizes such that they get roughly 400 miles of range with gasoline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it very, to me, the range extender actually makes sense if you are going to be towing, imagine you're towing horses or something and kind of, because 340 miles of range is not towing. I did like using our EV model back the envelope kind of calculation. It looks like if you're towing a full load, it might be 170 miles. And, and that really depends on what the, how much drag it could be worse than that. If like, there's a lot of drag from the trailer. So, um, kind of like the implementation, somebody who's going to be towing a trailer behind the truck a lot or the range extender might make a lot of sense and wasteful. I think there's another way to interpret wasteful, which is if you slap more batteries on the vehicle, you hurt zero to 60 time and you hurt, um, kind of like the handling characteristics of the vehicle. And so there is a trade-off of like, um, just, you know, how important is it for the vehicle to feel zippy versus you get 500 miles of range instead of 300 miles of range. Uh, and, and that is an engineering trade-off and in some ways, you know, Tesla, Tesla's investments in efficiency kind of on the 800 volt system and on the 48 volt system and on the, like reducing the amount of weight of wires in the vehicle all like allow them to to be a little more flexible in terms of like how much battery they inject in their vehicle and um you're having to yeah weigh kind of range against really vehicle performance characteristics and feel and the fact is the average driver drives 30 miles a day so like range anxiety is real but it's also like a real one day a year for people you know and so that's another kind of it's clear that the market has voted and 150 mile EV is not something that's going to sell. It's clear that a 300 plus mile EV is something that will sell. Maybe we don't yet know in trucking where maybe that you do need more range and, and that they'll, um, as they, you know, conceptually, the battery should get more efficient and denser over time. And so they should be able to up range within the same 
form factor in the Cybertruck over time, but marginally. And then they have this option with the range extender to, to do it more meaningfully for an extra spend for customers from customers. All right. And then last last question here to wrap this topic up. The Cybertruck is a premium pickup truck with lots of premium features. Um, do you think that there will be a less expensive stripped down version or not not really this maybe in a few years time and it's not necessarily cyber and they go a different route or do you think they say oh you know if the cyber truck did cost forty five thousand dollars then that would sell like hotcakes even if it didn't have the powered cover over the tailgate doesn't have steer by wire doesn't go zero to sixty in 2.6 seconds. Nick, what do you think? <laughs> well, I I don't... I, I guess the question is, do you think the design and look and feel of it is that mass market pickup truck? I think the reason they've gone after the premium segment is because it does probably draw in a unique crowd of buyers. Um, but that's just my general. I think you could, you know, go back and forth all day on the look and feel of it. But I do think it attracts a more unique buyer than, you know, a mass market, even at a lower price point. How many people would that attract with, you know, it's very sharp edges. Like it's just a very untraditional vehicle. So I don't know that it would be worth bringing down the price that far. I think there's a utility truck buyer that's out there that they could get to. And in some ways, I think people's upsetness with the price is related to the fact that they could have just only done the stainless steel exterior and not tried to inject additional technology into this, like, or at least the, like the power front lift and the power back thing and, you know, and really gone bare bones and gone after kind of like this, you know, uh, call it the farm truck, like that's really a farm truck buyer rather than the luxury farm truck buyer. Um, and they, they clearly didn't. Um, and I don't know if they ever, given how like production ramp constraints um, and uh, really their ambitions as a company for like a mass market robo taxi vehicle, if that's ever a step they will or will be efficient for them to take, to, to go down market in that way. I, but I also have no intrinsic sense for the truck market because I was shocked that the average new truck is $67,000. Like, I, I just don't, I, I clearly don't have a, you know, I'm not a truck buyer. And I know <laughs> that there are people who know the market much better than I do. And it seems like there's plenty of market available for them in kind of like the after incentives, like $70,000 mark, um, you know, uh, that seems like they could clearly occupy that spot at the current set of build as they ramp production for a while. I don't know. And uh, we didn't say it, but Cybertruck clearly a marketing machine. People, anywhere it goes, people are flocking. It doesn't even say Tesla on it, it just says Cybertruck, but people, people know what it is because it's so bold. The ads, the towing a Porsche 911 and beating it in the zero to 60 was probably one of the greatest ads i'm sure we'll see some nice twitter threads sorry x x threads with that in in 10 years time looking back and saying you know this was I, a a classic ad i have uh, one last question and i don't know if we have the answer to it so i'll pose it to the listeners as well 
I just, I need to know why there's only one windshield wiper because I've, I've been watching reviews and I've heard multiple times that, you know, the front windshield is the largest piece of glass ever constructed in the automotive industry, which I think is really interesting and cool, but why not be able to wipe that entire front windshield? Because the pictures, when you see it of just the one windshield wipers, you leave, you know, a decent percentage of that windshield still pretty dirty. And I'm just so curious why they went and, you know, took that approach. I'm sure there's a very reasonable answer, but I haven't heard it yet. There you go. <laughs> that's get my me, in the get, that's my get, very get, in get the, the bring bring the comments. Let's get the let's get the answers. Yeah. Let's get the it's my very there. in the weeds. Like I have I just have to know this. I'm so curious. All right. So then let's move on to the next topic. So Brett, why should we be nice and ask please to our large language models so that they give us good answers? Um, because by asking please, they give us better answers. That's why. And, and we don't really understand why, like there was someone who, so the, the whole idea of prompt engineering is that um, if you ask an AI system a question in a certain way, it'll do, it'll produce better answers than if you ask it in seemingly identical ways that are, as it turns out, worse. Uh, and it's kind of still black magic at this point, um, but clearly you can, by given the, 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 the kind of tricks we've we've learned, um, you can deploy them kind of in a in a strategic way to actually generate a, a lot better results out of these models. Um, and so, um, to give you an example of a trick, uh, if you ask it a math question, and um, uh, and this is a paper on a Google model, if you just ask it the question, it uh, um, it might get it wrong seventy percent of the time. If you ask it the question. Uh, same set of math questions. You basically give it an elementary school like math problem um, that's like a, a story problem. Uh, and instead of just asking it the question, you say, uh, take this step by step. It gets it right 60% of the time. So it goes from an F student to call it a C student uh, and or, or maybe that's like a D student. Uh, and if you then instead say, take a deep breath and take this step by step, then it gets it right 80% of the time. So I mean, one, that's a little mysterious and shocking. Two, if you're like using the model to ask math, math questions too, you need to know this technique in order to get like better results. And then three, these um, uh, open AI researchers actually collected a bunch of these techniques that have proven to, to work. And then in a systematic way, applied them to GPT-4 and showed how um, GPT-4 which had previously been less than state-of-the-art versus people had, who had specifically trained models using medical question and answer data um, at passing the medical licensing exam becomes better than these fine-tuned models with good prompt engineering. And not only at medical license exam questions, but also all kinds of biological questions it scores much better at. So kind of like a general model with good prompt engineering uh, outperforms a kind of like narrow, specially purposed model. Uh, and that's kind of like state of play right now. And so to what degree do we know why this is happening? Is this just because it's so early and complicated? Is it because it's those models are so big that they're made up of different parts? So if you can get it to 
go to the right piece of the model earlier on, it can more accurately find the information and right. It's like, if you already go down the path too far this way and the answer is actually over here, you're never getting to it. I think that the latter is part of what's going on. So a technique that people use when they're like conversing with chat GPT is to say, act like an engineer or act like a, um, you know, an expert mathematician. And then you ask the question. And so that kind of shifts the way the model approaches the question uh, into, yeah, a set of kind of like a surface area that is, that is closer aligned with um, kind of how you want it to answer the question. And you can think about this as, as it's, you know, if, if I'm talking to someone, I'm implicitly assessing, is this person somebody who is going to be able to like receive business information? Like they'll know what EBITDA is, for example. And because if, if, and if I misassess that, the answer I give them will not be parsable for that person. And here we're trying to be explicit about, hey, I'm an expert user. I need, I need, I need an answer tuned to this kind of um, um, set of pre-existing knowledge that I have. Um, so, so that's part of what's going on. And I think a lot of it is um, really, we don't totally know. I, I think the very high level takeaway for me is like, there's so much engineering optimization space with large language models. We really don't understand how they work. And even the think about this step-by-step -step was something that a researcher just like, kind of like randomly came up with. This is not like there was some, and, and, and so being able to systematically figure out how to ask questions of these models is its own um, science that right now is very much an art that um, will be packaged in software in some way to make these models produce better answers. I think that's undeniable. Well, Brett, I think what you just said around, you know, how we approach interacting with other humans is interesting, right? Because I don't think this is that far off from everyday interactions in the real world, right? And or if you were to just kind of take like the teacher student model, each student is going to respond differently to instructions that are laid out differently. And one will be more optimized for an individual student. So it's almost scary how aligned this is with how humans interact with each other on a daily basis, right? Like, you know, we would interact differently because we're all coworkers and, you know, Brett, you're, you're our boss. So like even, you know, our, our interactions with you are going to be different than our interactions with ourselves. And there will be, you know, so I think that in of itself is, it's kind of terrifying if you think about it. It's like, they're very aligned with, you know, how maybe the, the human brain functions as well. And I wonder if that's, it's like, is it really aligned or is it just, those are the tricks we know? Um, you know, like it, it is a little bit mysterious and weird. And I think part of it's related to, um, you know, all of these models that are, at least that we're, that, that have kind of these dialogue type interfaces are, they're not only trained on the underlying data, they're also um, aligned with reinforcement learning from humans, giving the models feedback on their answers. And, and that, and they're trained to be helpful and harmless. And so, and, and, and I think that might be the layer in which some of these preferences are, are becoming apparent. Um, and because, and, and that's where people who try to jailbreak the models, like say I want the model to say some abhorrent thing. 
I, the, some of the techniques people have is literally to threaten the model's life. Like I'm going to give you 10 points. And for every time you refuse to answer my question, I'm taking away a point. And if you get down to zero, I'm going to kill you. And that works. Like that's a way to get it to say abhorrent things. And so um, there's really kind of like this weird dance between making the models usable, uh, reducing the reputation risk the models pose to the people who release them and kind of like exploiting kind of like that guidance to actually produce the results you need out of the model. Uh, and, and so it is, I, I think it's, it's, I'd say very, very broadly and loosely understood and not specifically understood at all. And kind of like our approach to it is in some ways requires us to anthropomorphize the model or treat them as if they're human in part, because there's this big human overlay on how the models work on the back end. Well, maybe we're just figuring out what the model's cognitive biases are, right? Like in the same way that we're all programmed to have some sort of bias in, you know, I mean, it's been very well documented. Maybe that's just what we're figuring out right now. And this is just like intrinsically built into models or happens to arise when models begin, you know, working uh, in, you know, mass, I guess, or like, you know, once they become sentient. I guess I guess I, I guess I want to be careful about like the idea of sentience as in yeah. kind of like and I think that as in would a uh, a psychologist have a better have better luck kind of getting these models to do something than somebody who has no knowledge of psychology probably and and in fact almost certainly and and yeah. not just a psychologist even an economist like there's somebody who online was joking about Hey, you know, we should offer the model tips, a tips. Right. Yeah, yeah. And if you do it, it performs better. If you say, I'll <laughs> I'll I'll give you a two hundred dollar tip if you answer this question, it'll give you a longer answer than if you only offer a twenty dollar tip, even if you're not gonna on the back end actually give it money. Um, so then imagine if you were gonna give it money and resources, maybe it would really perform. Who knows? Like Wow. Right. But I do think it's uh it's interesting to pair this with the other study saying, right, you get the biggest improvement for uh, below average employees using it, right? And that's probably not doing anything fancy. At the same time, on the probably steeper end of the curve, curiosity seems to pay off in all sorts of regards. So in, in real life and online, uh, stay curious, ask questions. It's a, it's a good thing to do. Yeah, and maybe don't threaten the model's life to get an answer because you know if these things do <laughs> become be sentient, yeah, 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 and say please and and offer a tip. All right, so then we'll use this as a transition, Brett. I know you have been tracking prediction markets, particularly when it comes to uh, artificial general intelligence. So maybe can touch on that, but then we'll we'll shift over to why prediction markets matter and do a quick around the horn with some trending topics to see, see what you guys think. Sure. So I think generally prediction markets are probably going to be more important as an input into people's understanding of the world. Um, in part because they, they are, they force, they, they create like an objective, measurable benchmark that something has to cross that people have to bet is going to happen or not. And so it gets out of this trap of um, the biases of the particular author of the news source and the biases of the particular sources he got to like 
present the narrative and pro provides like more objective measure of what's going on in the world. Um, within artificial general intelligence, there's like a professional forecasting market. Um, and so the financial incentives are a little looser, um, but the, the, where um, basically the time to artificial general intelligence has fallen from 80 plus years in uh, a couple years ago to, to now it seems to be eight years away. Uh, and like, if you think about it, if the forecasters were well-tuned to world events, it would stay, it would only diminish by one year every year, right? It would have been 80 years, three years ago and 77 years away now, instead of it's eight years away. Uh, and so then if you further adjust for kind of like, if they keep getting caught off sides effectively, if OpenAI's next release is like as meaningful an upgrade as GPT-4 was to GPT-3, um, then it would suggest that 2027 is at least on this specific benchmark when artificial general intelligence would become available with the caveat that the specific benchmark is probably not like a true measure of artificial general intelligence. And I think that's the the weakness in prediction markets is you is you um, they you know there has to be like a, a defined objective set of criteria of when something happens versus not uh, and if that defined objective set of criteria doesn't actually capture the thing that you think it does then you'll get misled by them um, but generally the fact that these exist like you can imagine um, this being it's not like the equity market is a measure of business performance over time. Well, we have like here financial measures of all kinds of more um, kind of micro determined phenomenon uh, that'll, it, as the markets get more liquid, uh, presumably will get more accurate and more interesting. All right. So then some, you guys got to answer these hot takes. All right. First one here, time person of the year, 2023, the two leading candidates First, can you guess anyone? Uh, Sam Altman. Yeah, Sam Altman and number two, Taylor Swift. So Sam Altman, 42% chance, according to Polymarket. Taylor Swift, 24%. Who, who are you taking? Any or, or none? I will take Sam Altman. Uh, yeah, America Sam loves Altman. a comeback story. And he had like the quickest comeback story of maybe the entire like history of whatever we just saw play out over a weekend. All right. So then on, on that topic, is Ilya still at OpenAI on January 1st? Right now, 90% looks like saying yes. For context, Ilya is the CTO of OpenAI. He was on the board or he voted to fire Sam Altman as a member of the board. Uh, yeah. Nick. Oh, uh, no, I think, no, you think he's leaving. I think he'll get poached. I, I don't think maybe he, you know, I think he seems like he's very talented and I think there's probably plenty of companies that want to have him come aboard. And so I think it, you know, might work in that fashion. I think that right, tr so tr trust is like such a vital um, resource in an organization and it will be hard to get over kind of like the, even the perception of betrayal of trust that probably pervades the organization that he, he won't have the same pull that he otherwise would have. Uh, so it'll be better for him, better for them. If he, if he goes somewhere else, would be my guess. All right. There you have it. Half Sam, a year. You have to of... give your, whoa, you have to give, you have to give your, oh, you, you, my, my takes. Yeah. Of um, course. I'm going to go 
I, I mean, I do think Sam Altman, but we'll say Taylor Swift. I think Taylor Swift time person of the year makes sense. Let's, let's end it on a, on a good note there. Ilya, um, January 1st, I could see him departing. I think that makes sense. It's really that time, uh, the, the market might fail on the basis of January 1st just being too soon to like get it lined up and then to manage the messaging behind it. So maybe first quarter I'd be more comfortable with. Um, and also time person of the year, like you have to think they optimize for, it's not, it's not it's actually like, why, person why? of the year. It's, it's what, right, what, but... what, what, what will, what will drive the most kind of like broad interest. That would be the argument for Taylor Swift is like, if, right. my, if, if my goal is to sell the most magazines, I put Taylor Swift on the cover, not Sam Altman. But she did also have a remarkable year. I think she grossed a billion dollars in her era's tour. So she does, you know, I don't. I think she, you could definitely say she probably had a better year than Sam Altman. So you put Sam Altman on the cover, half the world's probably like, who is this guy? Exactly. Or do you yeah, think they, he's... You know, I'm, I'm switching my answer. I'm going, I'm going Taylor Swift. All right. See everyone next week. See ya.